Welcome to Authors on Tour Live, a weekly podcast for people who love to hear about books from the authors themselves. My name is Darren Fote, and today we are podcasting live from the Tattered Cover Bookstore, one of the premier independent bookstores in the nation, with three locations in the metro Denver area. You can visit www.authorsontourlive.com for a complete list of upcoming podcasts. Wait a minute, it's time to begin. Tonight we are joined by J.K.L. Weston, who spent seven years on the ground in Iraq and Afghanistan, working for the U.S. State Department in some of the most dangerous frontline locations. Upon his return home while traveling the country to pay respect to the dead and wounded, he began to ask himself many questions about the costs and legacies of the wars. Weston will be discussing and signing his new book, The Mirror Test, America at War in Iraq and Afghanistan, a powerfully written first-hand account of human costs of conflict. Um, so please, without further ado, please join me in welcoming J.K. Weston. Thank you. Thank you, Thank you uh, for uh, coming out on a Wednesday evening, and not only as readers, but as, I think, uh, concerned citizens at a time, I believe, that war and warfare and how our nation goes to war, how we fight wars, and how we try and end wars are all relevant. Uh, I wanted to divide the um, 15 or 20 minutes I've got before we do a Q&A, mainly because there are a couple of veterans here, I believe, that more than a couple, but the two that I know from, from Iraq and Afghanistan, I want to bring into the, into the discussion, if we can, toward the end. I found last night in Boulder and I'm sure I'll find in uh, Utah, California, Washington, Seattle, everywhere I go next, that there will be probably some veterans in the in the audience, and I think they have an important voice in especially how these wars have been fought. So the first couple minutes, I'll try and explain how the book became a book. If any of you are wannabe writers or authors, you may have questions about that, which is not specifically content, but important because I think it's an exciting time to be considering writing about some of these topics. Then I'll move to maybe a theme or two that jump out a chapter or two. There's about 42 chapters, so I don't want to just run them one by one. They're mostly short chapters, and I figure as readers, when I read a book, there are some chapters I like, and there are some chapters I really don't like, and I can say that about my own book, too. Um, and then finally, we'll, we'll do the Q&A. So if that sounds okay as a game plan... I always open when I speak to university students or universities with a pop quiz um, because I used to have them inflicted on me, but I'm also the son of a fifth grade school teacher. So I am going to pose a few questions for you to think about. And some of you have already heard the questions before, but they're my way of trying to start off with a dialogue as opposed to J.K. Weston War 101 monologue. I've heard myself talk enough. The first question is, when I say United States of, a, of America, what words come to mind? Nouns, adjectives, swear words, anything. Just think about it. Um, the second question is tied to that, which is if I were to ask that question in this room, we're filled with Iraqis, Afghans, you know, people from the African continent, Yemen, Japan, Brazil, pick your country. Uh, what do you think the words would be that they would pick. So no right or wrong answers, just, you know, I put that out there. And now I've added a third question, which I normally don't ask, but we're a few days away from Memorial Day. And my book is intentionally, from my publisher being uh, rolled out uh, a week before Memorial Day, because one of the questions I ask is, how should we start to think about memorializing the two longest wars in American history and equally important, how might the Iraqi and the Afghans one day, if they ever were to try and memorialize our wars in their countries? So that's the question, I think, for them and for maybe the people who design a memorial on the mall one day. But the question to you uh, that I ask myself is, what does Memorial Day mean to you? So that's the pop quiz. I did not write an anti-war book. I wrote a war book. Um, I think many readers, as I'm getting reactions, would say, well, you are against war. And what I tried to do in the structure is take the two wars and put a different label on them. The Iraq War is the first section, and that section is titled The Wrong War. The second section is all about Afghanistan, where I spent 
about three years. I spent about four years in Iraq. Um, and that Afghanistan section is titled The Right War. And then the last section of the book is Home. So that's kind of the division of the 608 pages in shorthand. You might find some themes more interesting that I, I talk about now or less interesting. But w what, what was the gap in the war literature? I think probably the biggest gap that I wanted to address uh, was what about the people over there? There have been some very good books uh, coming out uh, from our veterans, Phil Cly, Matt Gallagher, Elliot Ackerman, Lee Carpenter is a civilian, uh, Eric Fair uh, on interrogation and torture. These are all, I think, must-read books. But I also think that we're still waiting to hear, maybe in a pure way, the Iraqi and the Afghan experience. The advantage I had over seven years is that my job as the State Department representative was to be between our military and the local people. So I've got two arms, and you know I'm, I'm holding them out. I was being pulled and hugged at the same time on both sides. So my book is an attempt to show both sides, not just one side. And I did the damnedest I could to be an honest guide, not a biased guide. You can judge whether I succeeded or not. So I'm not anti-war. I'm anti-wrong war. My grandfather and great-uncle fought in World War II. My dad and uncles were all in Vietnam. My brother-in-law was in the Gulf War. I've got a cousin that was in the National Guard who was down at Camp Buca, which I know Chris, who works in the bookstore here, will be familiar with that place. It was a detention, a very large detention facility. Um, and I think we should think about what are right wars and what are wrong wars. And then if we do decide as a nation to go to war, do we mobilize as a nation? Or is it just one half of 1% mobilized, which would be Dean and James and Katie, who's married to James, because families also mobilize, I believe, when uh, a son or a brother or a daughter or a mother are deployed overseas. I believe the Iraq war, our country went to war, but our nation did not. And I think that's pretty much true for Afghanistan as well. And as there's talk now about more war, I think it's healthy and very important to pause, especially when we're considering who should be the next commander-in-chief. The photos I want to talk about very briefly. Uh, if you've bought a book or you're planning to or you've got the ebook, I told my publisher and my great editor, I think if we do the photos right, they may be what people remember most, more than the words I write. I'm kind of an egotistic writer like every writer is, but I still think that some of those images that we specifically picked are not only tied to the stories, but I think they can do things that the written word cannot do. So I would just put that out there, um, that the photos were specifically chosen over the course of three to four hours in New York where we went from 500 photos down to 95, 90 of which are mine. So they do sort of preview the stories that follow and the characters, especially the Marines, the Iraqis, and the Afghans. I also ended the book, and then I'll, I'll finish with a couple of themes and then back to the pop quiz, with not my own writing, uh, but other people's writing. And some people have asked, well, why did you do that? You know, this is your book. And I pressed at the time that the editing was well underway that I think that some of the best writing as a former history major in college is just the raw, at the moment, journals and diaries from war, in addition to family and friends who are now getting online and memorializing the casualties. So I think we did something new in our book, which, you know, to the credit of Knopf, which is a tremendous publisher, they actually allocated extra pages to things they did not think they were getting. So if I look back on the book, I still think the photos and some of that word, those words at the end, especially from a soldier who served in Sauter City named Balin Orr, as well as the family and friends of 31 service members who were killed, uh, are some of the most important pages in my book. And I'm not just saying that. I really believe it. And when you read it, you know, you may agree or disagree. So what are the themes? Accountability is a big one. I worked with uh, veterans a lot uh, while they were in, in uniform, and a lot of the 
accountability that I saw in Fallujah and in Helmand and in Host was pretty immediate and could be severe. If you screw up, you know, as a commander or a senior NCO or even a PFC, you're not going to get away with it for very long. Lives are on the line. There's generally, I think, a pretty good check in the system. My dad in Vietnam told me stories, and it seemed that it more or less worked that way as well. Transition now to the civilian side. I'm not so sure that on the policymaking side we've had the same kind of uh, honesty about not only mistakes, but I don't even know what the right word is, but mistakes does not come close to the right word that have, have happened in these wars on top of some of the good decisions we've made. So there's a thread through the book of accountability. Another one is education. I didn't write a nonfiction book just so you could sort of, you know, and myself let it fly away, you know, after 600 pages. I, I wanted to try and do the best I could to educate a reader. Um, and that mainly comes through the stories that are in it particularly the Fallujans that you'll meet, the Afghans that you'll meet, and the Marines, including James, and part of his story uh, that you'll hear. Reckoning is another word. I think it's tied to accountability. I think, you know, for every veteran who served any time in these wars, it may take a while, but eventually some of the, the actions, some of the questions, some of the moral ambiguity catches up with you. And it did for me. And I use one decision kind of as a focal point in my own book, which was a policy decision we had to make in Fallujah about election support. Uh, election support. Uh, in late 2004, the second battle for Fallujah in part was fought not just to get the terrorists out, and we can talk about what's going on now, but, and there were terrorists, but there were also a lot of people who weren't terrorists that got hurt and killed. But it was also to say, look, they've got the chance to vote. And so when our government under the Bush administration said the election is the number one U.S. priority, 38,000 service members, mostly Marines and I, were in the western part of Iraq, and we tried to figure out how best to support the election process. So I go into some detail about how we weighed that decision and what some of the consequences, tremendous and tragic, were, particularly based on one decision. And then I transition to the cost for the Iraqi people um, that is also very much uh, a part of my pages. So reckoning, I think it's an important word when you talk about war. Um, it's personal and I hope one day it's also national. What were the policies we pursued? Uh, were they the right ones? Lots of different views on that. Uh, are we a safer nation or are we not? Drones somewhat comes into the picture. Torture, enhanced interrogation techniques, whichever way you want to look at it. I call it torture. Um, those are questions that come into my book uh, from the ground level up. I could go on about, about the themes, but uh, I uh, wanted to end before we go to Q&A with the quiz. So I'm going to open it up to the floor for a minute or two, which is what words do you associate with the United States in your own mind? Okay, James, a Marine here in Colorado, lives here now in Colorado with Katie. Strong and troubled. To opportunity. opportunity. Fluid. Fluid. That's a good one. I hadn't heard that one before. What? Ideals. Ideals. What's, what we have up here and what maybe happens in practice. That's a good one, too. What do you think if you were a non-American or an Iraqi or an Afghan or from Japan or Canada, for that matter, Mexico, what words do you think they would associate with us right now. Speaking from experience in Yemen, uh, at one point it was opportunity. Mm -hmm. it's, it's drones. Okay. So we have a, uh, I forget your name, uh, Gray, Gray uh, who spent a lot of time in some really uh, tough and interesting places, including Yemen, and she said drones. And I will come back to that because I think that that's a, a key word. Uh, so drones. Anything else? Money. I heard that a lot as well. Banks. Banks and tanks. Arrogant. Okay, a gentleman says arrogant. Anyone else want to put a word out there? Yeah. Arrogant. 
arrogant, controlling, powerful know-it-alls. That's, that's a good uh, lineup there. Uh, I, I've heard that too. I've also heard what I'll tell you, a, a brief story, um, because I think there are words that are very loaded and, and we've shown the ugly face of America that, that we don't like to acknowledge, but we need to. But I also tell a brief story about an Afghan medical student who in 2012, his name's Jamshid, when Neil Armstrong died, the only email I ever got from anyone, family, friends, was from an Afghan medical student living in Jalalabad, which is where Osama bin Laden used to hang out, on the easternmost edge of, of, uh, of Afghanistan. And what did he say? Well, you can read my book because I put it verbatim because it's so beautifully written in pidgin English, which is what I love when people communicate in our language and do it in such a pure way that's not filtered by 20 editors and overriding and everything we crazy writers do. But he said basically that Neil Armstrong showed that anything's impassable. And he, he, he spelled it I-M-P-A-S-S-A-B-L-E. And I think about back to the drones. Here's a kid named Jamshid looking through drones to the moon. But at least he's still seeing the moon. And what he was basically saying is you're a nation that showed that this dream is possible, not just for Americans, but for for the world and for future generations. So I think we just need to be honest. I think the words are good and bad. And as long as we're honest about what they are, I think we can uh, progress in the discussion that we need to have. I I choose not to read uh, when I do these events, mainly because I am sick of the sound of my own voice. But there is an audio book, and if you like my voice or if you like the book, you can buy the audio book. And there's 22 hours unabridged, and I spent five days in L.A. doing it, and there were a great team there, but I was ready uh, to no longer ever hear my own voice. Um, But it's a lot of work, I can tell you that. An honor, but my gosh, they work hard. Um, So now... The final part of the quiz was, what does Memorial Day mean to you? And then I'll bring up some of these veterans and we'll widen the Q&A. What does Memorial Day mean to you? Are you a, a veteran from Vietnam? A, a veteran, remembrance and reflection, two good words. I agree. Yeah. Non-veteran, three-day weekend. I'm really glad you you owned up to that because I also think that. And I've been ingrained, even though I come from a long lineage of veterans, that, hey, it's three days off. There's great cells at REI. I can go on a hike. I can do the barbecue, the beer, hang out with people like Aaron, who's another veteran who just showed up. Thanks, Aaron, for coming. Because that is, I think, what we all also think about, even veterans probably too. Yeah. Chris is a veteran from Iraq. After They're different. I'll repeat because I know we're recording. Uh, Chris, who spent three years in Iraq, uh, part of the army and then later on as a civilian said that the mix between Veterans Day and Memorial Day I'd never thought about that but you're right you know it's sort of like hey you know they're all together um, which drove you crazy you were in Northern California Southern California even better um, yeah no I, these are great because I think you know it's not wrong to say yeah it's a three day weekend and I think you know that's part of what we get used to as we grow up but now in Colorado you found it's it's better Higher levels of awareness. That's yeah, Sierra here talked about that she doesn't know many people or anyone really in the military who didn't while you were growing up, who 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 served and are no longer alive. Yeah, I I think again these are questions that that I've thought a lot more about because it's, you know, part of the question in my book, which is if you're going to try and memorialize the Iraq and Afghanistan wars, how do you start to do it? And by law, you really even can't unless it's been 10 years, you know, since the end of the war. Well, the wars really haven't ended. You know, President Obama has said that combat operations are over, but as we know, troops are still deployed and they're still going over. The other, the other point I'll make before we open it up to wider Q&A and then James Dean and Aaron, you can all 
introduce yourselves and, and answer questions as well. And Chris, if you'd like to as well, um, is I think it's a it's a goes back to the reckoning that uh, Memorial Day is to remember the past and those who served in the past to honor the present, but to really also focus on the future for the troops. And as I was walking over here, I wanted to kind of clarify that, which I think it's also I think maybe a responsibility for us to think about all the troops in the future and who's going to command them, who's going to lead them. Who are the politicians worthy of what will be a very, uh, very red sacrifice in, in the current wars or in a future war? So when I think about Memorial Day now, I'm also thinking who is worthy to command the best military in the world uh, and also probably the most overstretched military in the world right now. Uh, but anyway, I, I think those are questions and I'm glad you, you know, because nation and country are two different things. A nation is a nation of citizens. A country is our military budget. Our country is our tanks and banks. And I think that these wars have been our country at war in name only, not the nation at war. And, you know, as a history student, you know, you look at Rosie the Riveter to everything. If you walk along the National Mall, if you haven't done it, you know, go to D.C. other than in August when it's hot and humid and, and just stroll around the mall. You know, we all know about the Vietnam War Memorial, um, but there are others there, the Korean uh, World War II. One big war that is not memorialized there, World War I. And I've got a chapter in my book uh, called uh, The Mall of America. And I sort of walk you through these places and then pose the question. So that's enough on me and by me. Um, if you want to hear more of my voice, good or bad, you can order the audio. Um, so I want to now bring up the veterans who are in the room. Chris, you join us um, because I have questions probably for you as well. And, and James, you can say a little bit about yourself. We'll try and keep it brief. Dean, Aaron, come on up. And uh, Chris, who works here at Tattered Cover. My name is James Cathcart. I served in uh, 3rd Battalion, 4th Marines during Operation Vigilant Resolve. Uh, after that, I redeployed in 2005 right after Phantom Fury, which was where Kale took over in Fallujah. Uh, and did another deployment. After that, I returned back to uh, back to the states and went to the hospital in Balboa, the naval hospital in Balboa, San Diego, where I was being you know evaluated for post-traumatic stress disorder. At which time, I also saw a lot of the guys that had come back from uh, Phantom Fury, and uh, which was an interesting experience. Well few of you uh, have met me before. <laughs> my name is Chris. I was in the Army for 12 years. Um, worked in an intelligence role, so I had a lot of engagement with the local populations. Uh, I first went over to Iraq in 2004 and helped with sustainability operations up in Kirkuk. A lot of it was centered around getting the elections going and trying to set up some sort of civic society structure there. Um, came home, ended up going to the language school and studied Arabic for two years, got certified as a DOD Arabic linguist. And then I went back for two more years as a a civilian contractor, and I worked all over the regions around Baghdad and a little bit out in the marine areas as well. Um, that's about it as far as an introduction. Hi, I'm Aaron. I haven't seen Kale for about eight years, but it's good to be here. I was in the 3rd of 75th Ranger Regiment. Uh, then I was involuntarily recalled back to the Army in 2007, where I was with Kale in Afghanistan. Uh, I'm retired from the military now. I was in 15 years. Thanks. And we have a couple of veter one or two veterans from an earlier war, Vietnam. What, tell, come tell us your story, and then we'll, we'll open it up to questions. My name is Tim Dunn. I was born and raised in New York City, entered the Marine Corps from there. I served in Vietnam as a sniper in 1967. Um, after my tour in Vietnam, I worked in corporate America mostly in banking and finance, and then spent 21 years as an investigator for the Securities and Exchange Commission, posted here in Denver, Colorado. I'm a student of history. I really like your brief. And it takes a historian to know a historian. You know, it, it reminded me a lot of John Paul Van. Wow. Okay. So, but thank you for your time. We didn't just want to hear the intro. So any questions anyone has to any of us up here, I hope we'll take you know maybe 15, 20 minutes to to learn a bit more about 
all the perspectives that are here uh, today. Uh, so please uh, ask one, ask all. And if you get asked a question, please use the mic because we've got audio. And hopefully this will go viral on YouTube <laughs> or on whatever, wherever it goes. question was, do, do the veterans here agree with my right war, wrong war uh, divide in terms of Iraq and Afghanistan? I know what Dean's going to say. <laughs> uh, I don't agree. I don't disagree. I mean, I think there was issues with both. I think this was the first, I mean, this is the first war in, in I don't know how many decades where it's an all-volunteer military. So, you know, every kid who joined after 9-11 should have known what they were getting themselves into. They went for a reason. All the Marines I joined with, you know, I dropped out of college right after 9-11. Uh, you know, I grew up in a bad part of town here in Denver. Grew up fighting for uh, a little piece of shit corner in a, in, a, in a bad neighborhood that nobody wanted. And this country gave me an education. They gave me opportunity. You know, when 9-11 happened, I was a senior in college. You know, I decided to uh, drop out and, and go and, and, and put my, my money where my mouth was and defend my country. Something that, that you know, a country that's done so much for me. So, um... Whether or not right or wrong, I don't like putting that word on it. I mean, 9-11 happened. Somebody needed to pay. America had to show its force in the world. You know, we had to protect ourselves. We had to show that we weren't the, t the, the people to be messed with. I think mistakes were made. Uh, the idea of, of invading Iraq and trying to colonize it for 10 years, I mean, I mean probably one of the, the worst ideas ever. Um, you know, the Marine Corps were an expeditionary force, were an invasion force, and then we, we, we invade Iraq, we destroy it, we take it in 21 days, and then they have us sit on our hands and tie our hands occupying it for 10, 13 years. I mean, it doesn't make sense to me, but I don't have any regrets, and I'm not angry for, for the policy or for what we've done. And honestly, uh, if anything, you know, I had PTSD growing up in, in West Denver. The war knocked the chip off my shoulder and gave me something to look forward to and gave me something to be prideful for. Um, I think that it's definitely an interesting uh, question, and and I I think that you know I I knew what I was getting into going to war. I mean, I, I was very into very much into history, especially research on the Vietnam War, and I didn't have any uh, illusions about what it was going to be. Um, and so I think that the Marine Corps, the military, can provide lots of lots of you know lots of very valuable benefits, but I think. For me, the concern is more less of the fighting and the blood and the guts, and more of okay, like what did we do? What what is what is what did we actually accomplish, and why did we do it? Um, I lost people that were very close to me. Um, a lot of people have, um, and more of it became uh, not not so much my my concern about what I did action wise, you know, physically or whatever, but like as a country and just. The consequences. What was it for? Was my real, real question, and that's why I don't like the. That's why I actually agree with the the wrong war. Um, I remember I was, I was woken up on my 16th birthday. Uh, my mom came into the room. She pounded on the door, and, and she opened it and she said, "We're being attacked." Turn on the television, and so I turned on the television, right when the second plane hit the tower, and so. I saw that explosion, and, and then we just kind of sat there and watched it, and then, and then she, said, uh, she said, well, happy birthday, and, and walked out. Um, and so, I mean, after that, obviously I was paying attention, and I agree somebody had to pay. Even, even when, I was, when I was younger, I was you know, uh, just turned 16, and I knew somebody had to pay, and you know, the whole Afghanistan, everybody over there taking credit for it and everything, it made sense. It at least made sense. And then all of a sudden, I remember, after we, we went in there for a little bit, and then all of a sudden, the only link that I remember ever hearing was one time on the news, I heard some, uh, one of them say that Saddam Hussein had helped fund the attacks of 9-11, which was such a, just like a, a out there, no evidence, just a claim, that I, I really didn't believe it. Uh, it didn't make sense to me why Saddam would ever want an al-Qaeda organization in his country. He didn't like any resistance or any, any insubordination, so it just didn't make sense to me. The WMDs, all of it, to me it was the wrong war. To me, I don't know why we went there. Um, Afghanistan, I didn't, I didn't myself go there, but it makes sense to me. It, it, it actually, there was a purpose. There were people that 
took credit for the attacks, whereas in Iraq it just doesn't make sense. That's my view. I think uh, I agree with, oh, sorry, what was your name again? Sanchez. Sanchez. Uh, as far as kind of not having an not that you didn't have an opinion, but I don't know how to answer that question either. I don't, I don't think in terms of right war, wrong war. Um, I've gotten really into the, the Zen Buddhism since I've been working at this bookstore. There's a famous Zen quote, something is only a problem if you make it a problem. Um, I actually went back to college trying to answer that question myself, to understand what I had been a part of, um, having a little bit of more, more maturity at that point, a few more years under my belt. I wanted to understand what the heck was that surreal experience that I just went through. Because I also enlisted right out of high school. And I was a freshman in college when 9-11 happened. Uh, I was going to Boise State, and I dropped out and decided I wanted to do my part or whatever I needed to do at the age 18 to serve my country. And I thought somebody had to pay for what had happened, or we needed to figure out what, what the cause was or the root, root source. Um, so I spent two and a half years at UCLA with a lot of great professors, very distinguished people with a lot of connections in government, a lot of connections in the State Department, and I thought I was going to just get exposed to all the right information, and I was going to walk out of there understanding and feeling a sense of uh, validation for what had happened over there. And I actually walked, walked away from that university very disappointed, because I felt like a lot of academics and scholars love to get up and grandstand on the stage and talk about how stupid that war was and just totally rip apart the administration. And I didn't hear anything constructive about any of it. And in the Army, we do something after every mission. It's called an AAR, an after-action review. And we all sit down as a group, and you have to bring up, at a bare minimum, on a, even on a small scale, three things that went right and three things that went wrong, how you can sustain the things that went right, and how you can improve those things that went wrong. And I was hoping in the university setting to hear that same process being debated by very intelligent people, and I just didn't hear it often or at all. And sometimes I would try to bring those points up, and I got shut down by a lot of those professors. Um, so in my opinion, I just came home not even caring whether it was the right, right war or the wrong war. It was an experience that this country went through, whether we like it or not. And I'm hoping that people actually start to look at the data the right way and start to assess what we can do better in the future because there's going to be more conflicts. There's nothing we can do about that. So it's the best way I can answer that question. I was part of the invasion of Iraq, and uh, at the time it seemed like a good idea, I guess, because of what we heard from the politicians. In hindsight, it's easy you know, for me to see that it wasn't the right thing to do. Uh, it was certainly a lot nicer than Afghanistan now, but uh, doing what I did, it built a lot. It, it makes a person resilient, so I guess I don't have as many of the issues that some soldiers do, but uh, yeah, certainly it's easy to spin your wheels, though. I got stuck in an army hospital about three years, and uh, that was about the toughest thing I did. Mr. Weston. It was after the war, yeah. Yeah, after I got wounded, so thanks. My time for military service was a time that there really wasn't a choice. Your choices were very narrow. Serve or leave the country. I elected to serve. I joined the Marine Corps, as I said earlier. It's very interesting to note that now we have an all-volunteer force. That aside, when the plane struck the World Trade Center in Lower Manhattan on September 11th, 2001, I lost eight friends who were New York City firemen. I can still not take a look at those planes striking the World Trade Center. I just can't. I can get through other things okay, and yeah, I have PTSD as well. But the interesting part about that was I felt the need that we had to respond some way, and I was very angry to learn that we were unprepared. The defense mechanisms that we had in place, the aircraft that was supposed to respond, were not even armed. And I thought, what's going on here? Why do we have the best military in the world and we were asleep at the switch? When we went in our response to Afghanistan, I thought it was a purposeful response to those people who were responsible for organizing and sending the al-Qaeda representatives to attack us. 
I believe in this concept, right wall, wrong wall. Because the Iraq invasion was, in my estimation only, the neocons who wanted to change the shape of the Middle East. And as we see, it was very unsuccessful. I have returned to Vietnam for a visit. And earlier, you heard me say one of the words that people would use is arrogant. I heard that mostly when I traveled in Europe. When I went to Vietnam, the words I heard were generous, that the Americans are generous people. If that's the legacy that we have with the Vietnamese, I think we have room to work something else in with some of the current attitudes towards us. Wow. I mean, that's why I like having veterans, you know, share the stage because my page is my page, but these voices, I think, are what's missing in in a lot of what's out there. Uh, Any other questions? Uh, Please, we've got some great perspectives here, and I like hearing them as well. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, and I think that's where State Department and USAID were always welcomed, I found, by the military, which was, which was we, want more, we want more help. You know, we don't want to be, maybe you have something to say to that. I yeah, want to come up here to the mic. So. so this is something I've been pondering over because uh, I've had a lot of friends and colleagues tell me I need to start writing about my experiences over there because they're hearing stories come from me that they're not hearing anywhere else. Um, in my role, after I went, went through the language school and got certified as an Arabic linguist, my mission kind of changed in the Army. I was no longer just an intel guy. Everybody, all the way up to the, the generals, the stars on the shoulders, were expecting me to be the bridge between the locals and my fellow soldiers as far as raising awareness, educating them, trying to help dictate and guide how we were interacting with the local populations. And there was actually a lot of great stories that came from those times and those experiences. This war did not go as bad as it could have. And there was a lot of culture experts over there, and even civilians on, uh, I forget what they call those teams. Yeah, the PRT teams. I mean, there's a lot of stuff out there that's just not been spoken about. I've not seen it in books. I don't see it written about in news articles. And there was all these things that the military was doing and was funding to try to go out and shake hands first before punching people with a fist. And I think as time goes on, those stories start to come out, people will realize that we actually were working a lot harder than most people think we were to try to make the situation go as best as possible. Hey, Aaron, come talk about the PRT and host because you raised a good point about P- PRTs were uh, provincial reconstruction teams, which included a large military component, State Department, uh, AID, even we had some Department of Agriculture people. And Aaron saw both sides because he was a grunt uh, infantry uh, in, in Iraq early on and then was with, where I met Aaron was in the host pre, uh, provincial reconstruction team so you want to follow up on that like how did you find the PRT's work oh jeez put you on the spot <laughs> civil affairs I guess uh, we lived amongst the local nationals uh, spoke with them daily uh, interacted with them built schools roads uh, never fired a shot in anger at them this is for 15 months and it was a lot different mission but uh, yeah I mean it wasn't like what you would think a regular soldier, sailor, or something would do. You know, it was more building and uh, goodwill. So it's a good experience. Then in in that year in host, our our budget for projects, Chris, you talk about, we spent about fifty three million dollars, give or take, on soft stuff. Whether it was well spent, well, I think you know when people talk about the schools not working, I think you know I got an email from, and I write about this actually in my book. Um, is it you know, half the schools we built basically are still functioning, which in my view isn't a bad bad deal. It was in one of the most dangerous areas of Afghanistan, too. Yeah, so a 50% success rate is not what some of the people are writing about because they want to say, well, these wars only brought mayhem and destruction and death, and that's not true. And my book is rough in the Iraq section, and I'll let you judge it yourself, but in the Afghanistan section, I do try and show, and Aaron, you'll be the best judge because you lived it, you know, that, that the Americans were doing some things that stuck. You know, I, I have two uh, um, Taliban characters who I introduce, uh, and they were basically like Aaron and James and everyone up here on the stage and a little bit like Dean even, which is their job was to fight us. And I try and show how they made a decision 
to put down their weapon and try and re reintegrate back into Afghanistan. So I think some of these important stories are starting to come out, but uh, we need more of them. Yep. I mean, when people say, why did you do seven years and two wars, it's to that point, is that if we're going to invade a country, I sure as hell did not want the Fallujah to have to educate the next State Department guy on Fallujah 101. Um, because war is, I think, the most serious thing a nation engages in. Um, and I knew my learning curve, and I'll, I'll be honest with you, I, I, I was known in the State Department for this quote, and it's not because it was a great quote, it was the truth. Every year in Fallujah, I understood 1%, and that was it. So over three years, I understood 3%. And I used to tell Washington and Baghdad, and they probably wanted to fire me because they heard it so much, which is, that's it. So I know it better than anyone, but it's 1% a year because it's such a complicated dynamic. And I think for all of our troops, you could probably relate, which is if you're living in Denver and an Iraqi shows up one day and says, we're here to help to have you vote, come to the city council meeting every week, what would you do? You would go. <laughs> I don't think I would because I think in that room... You know, there would be people who are listening to every word you would say and think, are you collaborating with the Iraqis in Denver? So what I used to tell the new battalion commanders and the regimental commanders all the way up to the CG is when you go into that city council meeting as an American in the middle of Fallujah, do you think they're really focusing their words on our ears? Or do you think they're focused on their cousin who is secretly the former pissed-off Bathist who is a half-insurgent thinking about supporting al-Qaeda. And that was always, I think, hard for the Marines, especially who came in, because there was an act that was going on publicly in all of our political discussions. And I used to say, it ain't about us. They're, they're maneuvering through a minefield that we have no clue is as complicated as it is. Any other questions? Because I'm enjoying this, but uh, I know we don't have unlimited time. You know, I, the media has always been used for all kinds of stuff, propaganda and all that kind of stuff. In every country, and every war, it's just, just how it is. Um, and so definitely, you know, the lead-up to the war, you know, that's a lot of it can be opinion-based and, and whatnot. But there are strong feelings, you know, this way and that. Uh, the, the real part about the media that I think uh, really needs to be touched on is embedded reporting in particular. Um, I, I uh, think that, you know, in Vietnam we learned that when you put it on TV... Um, the civilians back home can't hack it, you know, and that's kind of my, my opinion about it. Um, for instance, like I said, I was in the uh, first battle of Fallujah, and we went in, you know, we lined up on the road, and, and we ran in, you know, on foot into the city, you know, you know me and, and Dean here, and we, you know, fought hard, and we lost guys, and um, and it wasn't just our unit. And so all of that happened, and then... You know, what we had was we had that Al Jazeera group, and then we had even, you know, embedding with Associated Press, and, and I was interviewed with them um, on the front lines. What happened was everybody back home all of a sudden saw what war is. War is bloody, it's indiscriminate, and that's it. It's a terrible. It's a terrible thing. And it is not for people back home that don't understand gray area. And so I think that having too many reporters embedded, you know, in this day and age, there's a lot of idealism in America, you know, and a lot of, a lot of that, you know, is, is not checked with realism, you know, and, and idealism without realism is an illusion. And so that's what a lot of it was, and it caused us to get pulled out. We got pulled out, all that ground we took, all those lives that were lost was all for nothing, because the media displayed all of this carnage, and then the people back home and everything in public opinion became really negative, and so they pulled us out. Only to have the enemy dig in even deeper, come in, and stronger. We had them on their heels. We had the initiative, tactically, strategically, there was no reason to stop. It was strictly political because of the media and because, essentially, of, of the, the hearts back here. And so, um, after that, they, they were dug in, and like I said, I was at the hospital with the guys that came back from Phantom Fury. 
So I was there seeing all these guys broken, bloody, mentally, physical, physically, all that kind of thing that, you know, essentially I looked at as we could have prevented that. We could have prevented a, a large, huge numbers of wounded and dead. Um, and it's really, in my personal opinion, I take it as a betrayal. I take it as a betrayal. What was, what was done to Invigilant Resolve, that's, that's my opinion. The, the embedded reporter, you know, they, uh, uh, they come in, they act like they're your buddies, they tell you about home. You know, they were there two days ago, and they tell you about, you know, how great it is, and wait till you get back, and they, they want to be part of the guys. They want to be one of the guys while they're there. But at the same time, they're looking for that big story that's going to win on the Pulitzer. So, you know, they're your buddy. They're like a, almost like an undercover cop. They're your buddy until something screws up and, and it's going to make their career, and then they throw you, you know, rake you across the coals and, and make what you did, you know, look horrendous. And you, you've seen it a million times. Uh, you know, the, they give you the images with no context, you know, and um, I, I, I couldn't stand them. I, I, I didn't like them. They weren't my friend. Uh, I, stayed far, I stayed as far away as possible, and I never did an interview um, because they have an agenda, and their agenda wasn't to, to help the war effort. It wasn't to help the Marine effort. It was to help their career, and they would destroy anybody to, to, to make their career. Um, and as far as coming home, uh, they're still doing it. You know, you look at the news and you, and you ask the question, you know, how, do, how is the wounded warrior portrayed? How is the veteran portrayed? And what does media do? They give, they give two versions of the returning veteran, and that's either the, the gold-winning, you know, no-legged runner, uh, wounded warrior, wounded athlete, para, Paralympian who, who can win the gold or, or climb Mount Car- uh, uh, K2, or they get that... that, that guy who can't control himself and he's got PTSD and he's alienated and he's isolated and what that does is that gives these kids who come home who, who barely understand what they did and their own self-identity and it gives them two choices you know when, when they can't win gold well what, 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 what other identity do I have to associate with and that's why we have so many issues with the, with the VA with PTSD you know I haven't I've been home for you know since 2010 was my, my last deployment you know, six years, and I've never seen a story about that silent warrior, that guy who comes home and he's your neighbor, and he cuts the grass, and he doesn't talk about what he did, and he raises his family, and he goes to work in the, in the copper mines, and he, he's a good American. They never talk about that. They talk about the gold-winning Paralympian wounded warrior or the, the guy that, uh, that has a standoff with the SWAT team, and they don't give America the full story. And that's the problem with the media. That's the problem with the media then, and that's the problem with the media today. They don't give any context, and, and, and they only do what's in their best interest. They don't care about the true story anymore. I want to add just a minor PS on that, um, and it's to take nothing away from what's just been said. The number of, of dead Iraqi and Afghan uh, journalists is tremendous, and I knew one in Fallujah named Ibrahim. So while I'm not yet going to open it up to our journalists, um, the, the casualty rate for those who try and tell stories is significant. They don't have HESCO barriers. They don't have Humvees. They don't have weapons. And so I'll just put that out there, that the role of a journalist in Fallujah as an Iraqi journalist was probably one of the most dangerous jobs next to the mayor of Fallujah, next to the police chief, next to the head of the army. And his name was Ibrahim, and he was shot in the back of the head, and some Marines found him right as he was dying. I just want to add a minor PS on the role of media in a time of war. I personally do not believe that our media should stay home through the two longest wars in our history, nor do I think that their only option is to go shoot alongside our, our Marines. There are good journalists, there are bad journalists. I tend to think that the major papers have quality journalists. There have been a number of journalists who have died in these wars. Um, they are not embedded with us all the time. They're living in compounds that get bombed and all that. So while I'm not disagreeing with, some, with, with, with what's been said, I just think that the bigger danger in a democracy at war is that our government and our military are the only people telling the home front what's going on. I think that we need as much debate and as much dialogue as possible, but the bigger risk in a big democracy that has freedom of the press is that the government muzzles, and we may be facing some interesting questions here soon about who gets to speak and say what, or who needs to be afraid or not. 
without that check in our system, especially in a time of war, I would go to your point about the run-up to the Iraq war. Were the big papers asking the hardest questions, not only in the wars, which is what you've all talked about, but before we go to war? So bottom line for me, be careful. We all have agendas. I'm sure I have agendas, which I won't go into, but we all were human. But the bigger threat, I think, in a democracy is to say, you media are, are bad and part of the only part of the problem. Because if you look at our history, the media have raised some tremendously important issues, including a president that eventually got impeached and kicked out of a resign, basically. Why? The title of that Supreme Court case is United States versus Richard Milhouse Nixon. The way that happened was not because of a State Department guy or a Marine or a soldier. It was because some journalists were trailing some really bad, bad things going on, and our Supreme Court got wind of it, and the president lost. And that's the strength of a democracy. But yes, I think in a war zone, we need to be wary. We need to be sure that we're you know, around people who, who know the wars aren't just jumping in and out. So I think we've got to finish up now, but I really want to say thank you for everyone who... Uh, uh, who, who participated tonight. I, I think this is probably one of the most uh, incredible bookshops in, in our country. So for the people who might listen to this and, and for all of you here, I think the tattered cover is you know, what makes independent bookstores so valuable and important in a time when it's easy to click and, and order something for 1683, which is the price of my book on Amazon <laughs> versus, <laughs> versus 28.95. You know, my cut is still 15%. But I just want to say that, you know, I am going to buy my own book here. I bought several at an event last night, and it's yeah, self-interested. But more importantly, it's actually to send, I think, a message that, you know, these kinds of discussions with all these great veterans here who have different perspectives, because I know I learned listening to them and, and learned new things, is that it, it doesn't happen, um, you know, just based on, you know, happen chance. You know, we need to support bookstores. We need to support books. We need to support discussion. And, you know, there are easier ways to spend 30 bucks or, for that matter, $16.83. But I just hope that, you know, we, we think about that as we you know, make our own financial decisions. So I appreciate the time. I appreciate Tattered Cover. That's all for tonight's Author on Tour. I'm Darren Fode, and we have been podcasting live from the Tattered Cover bookstore in Denver, Colorado. Stay pod-tuned in the coming weeks as we podcast Authors on Tour.